Hey, uh, we are in this series called Imagine a Place where we are opening our hearts and our minds to God and saying, Lord, would you stretch us in our thinking? Would you stretch us in our desires for, for more of you? And, and would you help us recapture or maybe capture for the first time the awe and wonder of who you are? I think God wants us to live with this sense of amazement. Man, God is amazing. And every single time I get up here to speak, my, my desire, my prayer, my goal, my agenda is first and foremost to introduce someone, at least one person, to Jesus Christ for the first time. In addition to that, my desire is to convince everyone, or at least to prod them as much as I possibly can, to accept and recognize that God is bigger than you thought, he's brighter than you thought, and my goodness, he is so much better than you thought. Your assumptions of who he is may be falling short. He is a big deal, amen? I love our God, and that's why we gather, to celebrate our God. And so in this series, it's like, hey, what does God have in mind when it comes to the community of faith, when it comes to the church, when it comes to his bride? And in this, we're looking at the, the parables and how do they stretch our imagination, I don't know about you, but I, I find that I am fascinated by historical figures. I love reading biographies, and there are certain people that I think to myself, man, if they were still living, I think I'd be good friends with this person. We wouldn't agree on everything. In fact, I think what I like about him is I disagree with him on a lot of things, uh, but I like his wit and his candor, and, and I love his perspective on things, and one of those individuals for me is Mark Twain. I just liked his handle on life and the things that he said, and one time Mark Twain said this, you can't depend on your eyes when your imagination is out of focus. You cannot depend on your eyes when your imagination is out of focus. And I just wonder, have we developed a distorted imagination? Are we limiting ourselves in what we believe God is able to do? You know, I didn't say this last night, but it came to me today during worship where we're singing this song, War Cry, and there's that part, hey, I, I lift my eyes in the battle. And they had me thinking about coaching basketball or playing basketball. One thing you do often is you, you teach the players an offense, which consists of a lot of different cuts. Hey, you're gonna pass the ball here, you're gonna cut through the lane, right? And a lot of it is cutting to different spaces on the floor. And a lot of times what you have to then master with the, the players is once you get the cut down, then you have to teach them, hey, but don't just make the cut. Make sure your eyes are up while cutting because you might be open and your, your teammate can't pass you the ball if you're not looking for the ball. Does that make sense? So you can make the cut, but if your eyes aren't up, if your head's not up, well, you're not in a position to catch it and score. And I just wonder... If God is trying to deliver anything into our lives that we're going through life with our head down, making cuts, not looking for the ball to come our way. Hey, I wanna, I wanna lift my head. I wanna lift my eyes. I wanna, I wanna open my imagination. I wanna open my heart, and I wanna try to see things from God's perspective. And that's what the parables are doing. It's, it's trying to stretch us in the way we view life. That's what I love about Jesus. He came with uh, such a counterintuitive approach and philosophy and view on life. And here's what we've all discovered, at least most of us. His view on life, oh my goodness, it is so much better 
than what we're trying to construct on our own. Can I get an amen? So in scripture, check this out. It says, on one occasion, Luke chapter 10. Now this is to say on one occasion as if there was a lot of occasions. What is about to take place before us happened all the time and Luke's like, let's just tell you about one instance. So on one occasion, an expert in the law, some of your translations will say a lawyer, right? An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. And look at this question. How do you read it? It's a massive question. And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to, say it with me, justify. Now this is a theological term. Wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now pay attention, the, the conversation is moving from what to who. And, and just knowing your relationship with God, spiritual maturity will have you move from a what to a who. That is spiritual maturity, he goes on to tell us. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, and if this you know, text had a soundtrack. It would kind of be like, dun, 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 dun. Like, this would be the moment where the music manipulates the viewer, right? This would have been a scandalous thing for Jesus to say. This would have been an offensive thing to say. I mean, you think about the people you dislike or the people who ignore, uh, annoy you or the people that just create irritation in you. Well, when Jesus says the Samaritans, he was essentially provoking an irritation in the listeners and the man he's speaking to. He says, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him and went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, which for those who are curious about that, this is two months' worth of stay in the inn. Scholars have said, hey, how much would it have costed and how much coverage would this man have provided? He basically covers for this man to stay for two months in the inn, two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? And watch this. The expert of the law replied, doesn't he have the courage to say it? So he says, the one, doesn't say the Samaritan because he can't even bring himself to acknowledge the Samaritan's the hero in the story. So he said, well, it's, it's the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, my goodness, this would change the world. Go and do likewise. I mean, this is, this is loaded. Theologically, this may be one of the most robust parables in scripture. 
There, there's a lot going on here. And what you find is an expert in the law, a lawyer in the law of, of God, comes to test Jesus. And have you ever had a, a plan backfire on you? I, I mean, those who are chuckling have had a lot. I've had some things backfire on me. One of my favorite backfire stories was not my own, but Kristen's. <laughs> who is now my wife. But Kristen, at one point in college, set up a hangout to try to hook me up with her roommate. And it backfired. And uh, I love that. Some of you don't know, should we laugh at that? Should we be on Team CJ or Team Kristen? You'd be on Team CJ for this one. But he shows up to test Jesus. I love that. Some people I've heard talk about all the times people would probe and test Jesus. And you can hear in their language, they, they almost feel bad for Jesus. I, it's so sad how people would test him. And I think to myself, I'm glad he was tested. I'm glad my surgeon was tested. I'm glad, you know, my pilot was tested. I'm glad my lawyer was tested. I am a skeptic in nature, and I'm, if I'm gonna anchor my, etern my eternity and my identity and my purpose to this man as Lord and Savior, I, I wanna see him pass some tests. I'm okay that he was tested. And he comes and he, and he tests Jesus. And it's amazing to me because in this testing, Jesus springs the trap that this guy was trying to set on him, and the guy finds himself stuck in his own discovery. See, what's happening here is Jesus would, he would go throughout the region, and, and he would just love people, anyone and everyone, you name it, no matter what their background was, no, no matter what their lifestyle was, their decisions, no matter how much they were for God or living even opposed to God, he just loved everyone, and this created confusion for the religious elite, especially the religious experts. And so they would look at the way he was behaving and they would, they would come probing, hey, this doesn't make sense. And I love it because Jesus would then give explanation to his behavior, which I believe, and I know this is a heady concept, but I believe that is the best form of evangelism. I would say this, evangelism we go ahead and put that first one up, is not speaking before you act. I think evangelism is best acting before you speak. In fact, I would say it this way. Evangelism is less about explaining your beliefs and more about explaining your behaviors. See, this is what Jesus would do. He would live in such a remarkable, just curious way that people would look upon his life and be like, why do you do that? Why do you live with those values? Why do you treat other people like this? And they would lean in in curiosity and then Jesus would get to explain his behavior. This is a great way of evangelism. Some of us fail to recognize that our lives may be the only Bible people read. And so say, hey, I'm gonna live in such a way that even those around me who don't agree with me, who don't believe in what I believe in, they can't help but notice the difference in the way I'm living. Before long, they, they start to ask questions. Hey, why do you pursue you know, these type of values? Why do you treat your spouse like this? Why are you raising your children like that? Why do you steward your finances in that matter? How do you endure suffering in different ways what is it about you and your approach to life? It's so curious, and, and then it's getting to explain. 
your behaviors. And so that's the, the test. This man thinks there's a gap. He thinks there's a gap between Jesus' beliefs and Jesus' behaviors. And what he's about to discover is actually the gap is on his side. And I just wonder, is there maybe a gap for you when it comes to your beliefs and your behaviors? And so in this test, Jesus asks him this question. He says, how do you read it? Oh my goodness, this is such a profound question. This is a question that not only struck at the heart of the the day and age in which Jesus lived in, this is a question that really presses on the heart of the matter in our current culture and society. How do you read it? Jesus is pressing on his interpretation. And I think in our world, we, we now live, sociologists would say, in what is known as the age of information. And I don't think we need more information. I think what we need is more interpretation. We have all this information and we don't know what to do with it. And so the question is, well, how do you read it? And in a room like this across all of our campuses, we span the spectrums. And some of you align very much with a a modern way of thinking that you know, kind of comes out of the 1930s and 40s and shaped the later 1900s. And some of you, you are immersed in what would be a postmodern way of thinking. And so how we interpret things at times is radically different. But the overarching question at the end of the day is, but how does God interpret it? I mean, this is, this is heady stuff. But there is a shift in our world in the way we think. So think about it this way. In the modern era, they cared about facts. In the postmodern era, we're governed by feelings. In the modern era, we wanted an explanation. In the postmodern era, we want an experience. In the modern era, they celebrated the heroic. But in this postmodern era, we now celebrate the ironic. In the modern era, it was all about credibility. But in this postmodern era, it's now all about desirability. There is a significant shift. And again, it's paying attention. Hey, why do we think the way we think? And I press on this a lot because it's one, it's something that fascinates me. But it is something that is tripping a lot of people up. If you can't manage the space between your ears, you're going to have a hard time managing the life you get to live. How do you think and why do you think the way you think? I would say it this way. If you were to get three baseball umpires in the room and discuss their philosophy on calling balls and strikes, one might say there's balls and there's strikes and I call them the way they are. Some of you say, yeah, that makes sense to me. The other umpire might say there's balls and there's strikes and I call them the way I see them. And some of you might be like, I'm with that guy. And then there might be, hey, there's balls and there's strikes, and they ain't nothing until I call them. I mean, come on, you, you, you can see yourself in these examples. You can see your kids in these examples. You can see your coworkers, your peers. We have different ways of defining truth, and it's tripping us up. So some would say, hey, I see it the way it is. And others would say, no, nah, it's the way you see it. While others would say, It's the way you make it. But again, every single one of us 
owes it to ourselves to begin thinking more critically about the thoughts that govern our lives. How do you read it? You know, Pastor Jason, one of our executive pastors, was asking me about this. He's like, hey, you're always probing on people's thought processes and, and logic. Like, it's clearly a gift of yours. Like, is there ever time that you discovered that in your life? Like, when did you notice that? I had never been asked that question and had me thinking. And, and I told him, I said, well, the earliest I can remember was a time in junior high. It's junior high, and we've all had this experience. You come into class, and it's test day. And you recognize, hey, there are different people having very different experiences in this moment. Remember test day growing up? You show up, and some of us were stressed out, anxious, afraid, like, oh my goodness, I'm not ready. I'm going to fail. Test day was terrible. And then there was that annoying group of people who showed up with like six number two pencils all sharpened perfectly, sitting at their desk ready like chipper. They got dressed up for the day. They were excited. And I remember in junior high thinking to myself, this is interesting to me. We're all experiencing the same test, but in this room, there's two groups of people having different experiences. And I remember thinking to myself as a junior higher, some in this room fear failure, and some in this room desire success. And as a kid, I just remember thinking to myself, moving forward, I'm gonna be on the side of people who desire success. And I just think learning to like, hey, why do I think this way? Why do I think this way? So Jesus says, hey, how do you read it? How would you explain it? He says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. To which Jesus says what? You have answered correctly. Meaning, this man had the right answer. The problem is, he had the wrong application. And, and I'm guessing if some of us were to sit down to coffee, we would discover maybe even within our own community, some of us have the right answers, but the wrong application. And I think the courageous among us, the people who are really gonna grow in their faith, I mean, they're the ones who go to God honestly and humbly and say, God, is there any gaps between my beliefs and my behaviors? Is there anywhere in my life that maybe I have the right answer but the wrong application? This is where spiritual maturity starts to take root in our life when we allow God to press in on those matters, to create a tension in our heart. Kristen and I are subscribing to this, this trainer right now, this guy online. He's a bit annoying, but he's getting the job done. And um, one of the things that he, he talks about is time under tension. He says when you're working out, a lot of people where they get it wrong is they try to go too fast through their reps. And they think it's their speed. And he says, no, what's building the strength is, is the stretch. And so you need more time under tension. And I just wonder how many of you, you're foregoing growth and strength in your, your journey with Christ and your spiritual maturity because you're not spending enough time under tension. See, what happens is, is when we sense tension in our relationship with God, most of us are trying quickly to resolve it or eliminate it. But you start to realize, hey, my spiritual stature 
is developed and shaped the more time I spend under tension. So God, would you create a tension in me also that you can produce these things through me? And again, this is, this is loaded. I mean, Jesus, is, he's so brilliant. I mean, on the spot, he rattles off this parable. And I mean, it is just hitting with revelations. And he drops one detail. He says, a man was going down from Jericho. Immediately, everyone in the room would have paid attention. Yeah, I know that path. That's a dangerous path. Twice in the day in which Jesus was living, that was certainly the case. There was a path that went down from Jericho. And it was in a hilly area where people would hide out and ambush travelers. Robbers and thieves would come and prey upon people. In fact, people at times, many times, would lose their lives along the path down from Jericho. So much so, this path had a name. And in Jesus' day, this path was known as the blood way. Oh, I love this. This is genius on Jesus' part. This man comes to him, hey, Help me understand your approach to life. Help me understand what you're doing here. And Jesus says, well, it's like a man traveling the blood way. I mean, this is, this is brilliant. Because not only does he put the story on the blood way, he then makes the hero of the story a blood issue. That's why the Jews hated the Samaritans. Come on, track with me on this. The reason why the Jews did not like the Samaritans is because they diluted the bloodline. They tampered with their you know, ancestry. And so what happened is, is over time, Jews started stepping outside the, you know, the Jewish nation and you know, uh, ethnicity. And so what happens is, is before long, they became, and what they would be labeled as with a derogatory term, was half-breeds. This is what they were known as. You are a half-breed. You are half-Jew, half-something else. Which anyone else, you're a half-breed? I'm a half-breed. I'm half-Norwegian, half-Swedish, right? And this is, this is interesting to me because the Jews were furious. In fact, they hated the Samaritans because they messed with the bloodline. And Jesus is like, oh, you've got some of the right answers but I'm about to blow you away. Because yes, blood's gonna be important in this story. But it's not your blood. And I know you think this mixture of blood is wrong. But in the same way this Samaritan is half one thing and half the other, Jesus stands before him fully God, fully man. Hey, the one who came to rescue all humanity is also a half breed. Oh, come on church, that's so cool. Come on, anyone just love the Bible? Jesus is just spinning this out. The guy would just sneeze revelations. Like, it's on the way to Jericho, Samaritans. And he's just dropping bombs. And it says on the blood way, a man with mixed blood saved the day. And here's the deal. We too travel a dangerous path. We too travel a road that comes with a lot of things that want to rob and steal from us. But we too have discovered someone who saves us along that path. And he too is a half-breed. This is amazing because here this expert comes to Jesus and he has all these questions and Jesus flips them on his head. 
And I think Jesus will flip some of us on our head and I think one of the things that will set some of you free is recognizing the entry exam into heaven is not a litmus test. It's a blood test. And it's by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross that is atoned for our sins and is finished and sealed our salvation on behalf of all humanity and those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Come on, church, can I get an amen? It's the blood way. It's not the blood way they understood it, but it's the blood way Jesus came establishing. It's a blood test. It's not a litmus test. And what is fascinating about this is Jesus exposes the religious system of the day. See, that's what this man is afraid of. He thinks Jesus has come as a cult leader. And he thinks Jesus has shown up to establish a new religion. And Jesus is like, please, that. That's not what I'm in the business to do. I'm not here for a new religion. I'm here to introduce a new way of life. I'm not here to guard an institution. I'm here to create a movement. You and I are not having the same conversation. God is not here to prop up our religion. God is here so you and I can discover new and abundant, full and significant, satisfying life that is found in Jesus Christ. That's why he showed up. And so he pushes on the religious system and he says, so a priest was coming down the path and my goodness, this is, this is awesome because this just doesn't call out people like you. This calls out people like me. Hey, the ones who were in charge of the religious practices, the ones who were supposed to be the standard bearers, well, the first guy comes down and what does scripture says? He goes by on the other side. Someone say other side. other side. And then comes the Levite. Now, if you're new to the Bible, know that the nation of Israel starts with a family that then becomes a nation, a nation made up of 12 tribes. As they would establish themselves, they would take over land. And of those 12 tribes, 11 of the 12 tribes were de designated land. One of the 12 tribes was designated the temple. That tribe was the Levites. 11 get land, the other gets to take charge of the temple. That was the Levites. And so here comes a Levite who again is a part of the tribe who is responsible for the work of God. And what does this man do? Steps by on the other side. Now, I think sometimes we get offended by people. A lot of times we're disappointed in people. But I think if you can empathize you can rationalize. What I mean by that is the more you say, hey, but what were they thinking? Why did the priest go by on the other side? Why did the Levite go by on the other side? And here's the thing. There was a custom of the day, a religious practice and standard that said that the religious could not be in contact with any dying thing. It would make them ceremonially unclean. And so here comes the priest and here comes the Levite and they see a man that scripture says is half dead. And they step to the other side because the religious rules of the day was you're not allowed to have anything to do with that. So they went by on the other side. And I wonder, is there any chance that the priest 
And the Levite thought to himself, I so badly want to help this person. I'm just afraid it's not allowed. Oh, that just landed. Because you have a child, or you were raised by a parent, or you have a cousin, a coworker, a teammate, and you're thinking to yourself, I so badly want to help this person. But the religion that I was raised up in, I don't think allows it. Who can relate to that? Doesn't religion have a way of callousing our hearts? Again, Jesus puts us in such an uncomfortable place. What do we make of this? And sometimes I, I look at the priest and I'm like, I feel that tension. I have so many friends and family members, loved ones in my life who, my goodness, I don't, I don't support their lifestyle and their decisions. I don't agree with them on everything. But my goodness, I care deeply, deeply about them. And sometimes I'm like, man, my church folks would lose their mind if they seen me in relationship with this person. But can you imagine a place where we as individuals say, man, but I love them. I love them. And this religion is getting in the way of this relationship. This is, I mean, listen how you're leaning in. You can sense it in the room. This has every single one of us in a place of growth. You can either grow right now or you can grow even more calloused right now. God, would you break our heart for the things that break your heart? Would you open our eyes to the way you see the world? And I think in this passage, as one goes by on the other side and the other goes by on the other side, Jesus wants us to understand, folks, when it comes to people, you don't get to pick sides. Oh, slow clapping on me. It's all right. I know some of you are reluctant to embrace this. This is hard stuff. This is not to say you co-sign to every bizarre, immoral, just wacky idea that's out there. It's saying, I see the thumbprint of heaven upon every person's life. And I believe that the same God who came for me came for them. And I might be the conduit of hope and grace and love and joy and peace in that person's life. I'm not siding against them. I'm for that person. And I want them to discover God's for them as well. Come on, church. That should be the... The driving force in our heart is to say, hey, I am growing in my love for the world. For God so loved the world. I mean, he so loved it. He gave his one and only son. And I just wonder if you'd be like, but I just so love people. See, here's what happens with us. We, we get exposed for a limited grace. Don't we? You ever found that something in your theology as you're growing spiritually places certain people outside the grace of God? For the longest time in my life, I thought I was one of those people outside the grace of God. And then I was blessed to have someone say, no, this grace is sufficient for you as well. My son was asking me, he said, Dad, do you ever get nervous to preach? I said, well, yeah, all the time. He said, well, but are there like certain topics? And if I were to 
poll the church and say, hey, what topics do you think make me the most uncomfortable? People would probably say, oh, pastor, probably doesn't like talking about giving, which is not the case with me. I love it. I think giving is the ultimate joy and privilege. Without a doubt, the number one most uncomfortable topic to speak on, the one that gets me the most emails and causes people to dislike me, is every time I preach on grace. You stand up here and preach, I'm telling you, there is no terrifying topic more than grace. Because the grace of Jesus Christ, it is scandalous. He shows up and he robs humanity of our shame and everything we've done, all of our offenses, all of our shortcomings, all of it, the brokenness, the hatred, the evil, the wickedness, grace takes all of it. And that makes all of us a little uncomfortable. Grace is a hard thing to talk about. But here's the thing. These men coming down the road, they view an, viewed an individual who is half dead. I don't think we're allowed to interact with this person who is half dead. And then comes the Samaritan who doesn't see an individual who's half dead. He sees an individual who's half alive. Yeah. I mean, how do you see it? It's the whole glass half empty, half full thing. Which I think is a, a great analogy. Most times we don't spend enough time discussing it. Is the glass half empty or half full? The difference is not in the content. Same amount of ounces. The difference is in the consequence. How you choose to view this has a direct impact on the life you choose to live. It's the results of it, right? And here this man comes and he says, I see someone who's half alive. And I think people of faith, we make faith-filled assumptions where we, we look at the world around us and we're like, yeah, I mean, their dreams are dying, their relationships are dying, their goals are dying, their passions are dying, their potential, it's dying, but I still see someone who's got some life in them. And if you're not dead, God's not done. And if you have breath in your lungs, the living God is still at work in your life. I see someone who the hound of heaven is pursuing. That's what the ancient scholars used to call him. They would say, hey, he's, he's the hound of heaven. He's like this dog chasing after the world. I love him. I'm for him. I'll do anything to captivate their heart. And that's what we're supposed to do as followers of Christ. So say, I'm, I'm going after a broken world that's still half alive. See, the Levites and the priests, they asked the question, if I help this man, what could happen to me? But the Samaritan comes and he says, but if I don't help this man, what will happen to him? And church, it takes, hear me on this, all kinds of people to reach all kinds of people. There are people in your life I could never reach, but you can reach them. And it might be you, like you might be the answer to someone's prayers. You might be the instrument of life change in someone's life. Hey, I just don't think what could happen to me. I've arrived at a place in my life that now I think beyond myself. What could happen to them? 
What could happen to my coworkers' marriage if I don't share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ? What could happen with my cousins or my nephews if I don't share with them Jesus? What could happen to them? This is what spiritually mature people do. And last week, my, my buddy, Pastor Steve Husky, spoke, and I, I just thought he did a fantastic job, and, and he was talking about the different roles that we play in a parable. And where is scripture nudging us towards? The Samaritan, right? That every single one of us should set our eyes on, hey, I wanna be the Samaritan, but do you know who I think most Christians wanna be in this passage? The innkeeper. Which, again, Jesus, brilliant. The guy who shows up with no room in the inn, tells a parable of someone who provided space in the inn. He's awesome. Um, but think about the innkeeper. Samaritan goes out, finds an individual on the side of the road, road, addresses his wounds, brings the person to the inn, and then covers the expenses. Now, I think a lot of people want to be the innkeeper. Someone else go find the people. Someone else meet their needs. And someone else give to cover the expenses. And once they're here, we'll take care of them. This was at least the case before COVID. And now Christians don't even want to be innkeepers. I mean, let's not even talk about being Samaritans right now. Let's just talk about the fact that we have campuses that need to add services yesterday, but we don't have enough innkeepers. And my challenge is what would it look like if you got beyond yourself? I think the best thing you can do for yourself is to do something for someone else. I'm telling you, the road to significance is marked with service and what would it look like? And would you consider, hey, in this season, I'm at least gonna be an innkeeper. I'm at least gonna be in position so when other people bring folks in who cover their need and cover the expenses, I'm at least here to help take care of them. 